0: This is episode 1543 of the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. If you enjoy this interview or any of the others from the archives, help me keep the show going and growing by visiting the Contribute tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com. My guest for this episode is Joshua Peace Seeker Hughes, an American permaculture practitioner living and farming in Costa Rica. His work there which forms our discussion today, includes issues of land preservation through bottom-up solutions, regenerative resource-based economies, divestment, changing our lifestyles, the real wealth in resources versus the illusion of money, and how we are in a period of transformation that requires transitional ethics. Let's go ahead and jump right into it with Joshua, Peace Seeker Hughes, I'll join you afterwards with information on how you can enter for a chance to win a permaculture design course at his farm in Costa Rica, my thoughts on this episode, and the upcoming release schedule. How's everything in your neck of the world? Not too bad. We're finally moving from what seemed like a blistering summer into a cool fall. The weather is just delightful. We're still holding in an
1: eternal spring with actually almost no rainy season this year. Yeah, El Nino's doing a number on Costa Rica, so... (laughs) But uh, that's why we're planting trees, maybe.
0: Try and help control that weather a little bit. <laughs> Has there been a lot of deforestation in that
1: region? I bought a farm in, in like the worst part of Costa Rica for that. I wanted to be in a place where I could start from, from something that was destroyed. So I bought an area that was pretty much all cattle and tobacco over the years. And now, as the jungle was finally coming back, and there's been a lot of nice programs they've been doing, in the last 2 years palm oil has been creeping up into the mountains from the beaches so now i'm actually watching i'm watching jungle get burnt down to put in palm oil it's just like a documentary from indonesia or something i'm seeing in front of my face so i've been really engaged in the last year in uh, trying to create a new a new option to stop that
0: is that then an engagement to deal with the economic issues that are causing people to raise palm oil, or are you focusing more on the ecological side, or is it kind of a mix? It's both for sure,
1: but it's not even people raising it here, it's companies from out of the country. So, I wish it was even my neighbors growing it, that'd be I, I'd have less to complain about. So you know, it's like Mexico City groups come down here and are buying up what should be jungle, and stuff that's actually so steep, it should have never been anything but jungle. <laughs> So, uh, my neighbors are selling it because of because they have no way to earn a living here. Urbanization has really taken a toll on this place. And the free trade deals came in over the last years as I was here, CAFTA. Uh, we introduced Walmart and now Walmart's everywhere. they own everything here. and so so it's really I'm seeing a transition quickly and um you know I've kind of been through this because I've been very politically engaged for twenty years. It's something we're trying to hit from all angles. so yeah, we're figuring out how to do it with a, a mix of reforestation and like local cottage industry and
0: medicinals and things that the jungle does well. I had hoped that that homogenization of culture and exporting from the global north had been slowed down, but it sounds like it's just as quick as ever.
1: Well, I mean, a lot of the uh, like palm oil is really attractive. It's a lot of uh, gallons per acre each year, so very extractive of course it removes all of our resources here and if, if this was a product that was like getting rid of diseases in the north it'd be one thing but this is a product that's causing diseases so it's really not healthy for anybody and it's it's just a centralization of wealth i see happening right here so and this country is one of the countries that's very stable for for owning things so that's attractive to people you know, other countries around us have like fallen into war and changed changed leadership and changed models so much that people aren't comfortable investing in like Nicaragua or, or uh,
0: Honduras and stuff like that. So Costa Rica has been stable, but that's now becoming kind of the problem. That stability provides a lot of opportunity for people to come in and use Western investment models. Yep, that's correct. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't do anything really
1: for the locals except, well, no, they displace the locals completely because Nicaraguans will work for a dollar an hour here instead of the the minimum wage which is only three or four dollars an hour but still it's it's undercutting the locals in every way they're selling their land um, which is forcing land prices up too much for locals to come out and do any projects but then at the same time it's it's not enough to really set them free like my neighbors are going to sell they were about to sell 125 acres of beautiful jungle and like farming land for for about two hundred thousand dollars to some palm guys and uh, it worked out to where each person in their family would have gotten a couple thousand dollars for giving up a farm they'd owned for 80 years. It's really on, on, uh, on those of us that can do something to try. And I've got the ability so far in life to like pull in energy from outside the country that's doing it for the right reasons. A lot of permaculture folks. So we just bought two farms in the last year to stop it. And I'm on the path to do a few more in collaboration with the locals. Not just buying them for, for foreigners, but keeping the locals on their land with foreign help. Not loans and like assistance and in, in investment. So it's worked okay that way. And I'm, I'm keeping, I'm helping keep the locals that want to stay on their land, on their land out here.
0: It makes me think about land and development here where I am in Pennsylvania, that there are a lot of folks who will just come in and there will be, you know, a hundred acre farm and they'll offer the farmer $100,000 an acre and just buy it up. And there's no, you know, those kinds of numbers make it very difficult to remain on the land. Yeah, yeah.
1: And here I wish it was that big. If it was that big, I wouldn't even complain because these, at least my friends here would be able to set their families up, but they're giving up their one chance at not just being like living in a, in a city somewhere with no resource, they're giving up their one chance for really just a nice car one time. And that's happened down here. And so what I've seen in, in this country is I've seen the wealth come in by the, by the farms, but then at the same time, there was a free trade deal that knocked the taxes down on imports. So everybody sent all that money straight back to Wall Street for cars. <laughs> so there was like a transfer of wealth here that, that happened very quickly. And, and uh, you can see it. The jungle's paying for it. Because if you don't live here, you don't have to care what happens to the water and the erosion. And, you know, every tree is holding like 100,000 liters of water in it. And when they come out here and get rid of them, we end up with droughts and landslides. And, and our springs stop working. It's a really direct effect here. I can feel it almost immediately when someone comes in that doesn't care or is invested in the local community.
0: There was a recent conversation that I had, and we were discussing how the globalization has concentrated a lot of the externalities outside of Western cultures into the rest of the world in a way that very often are invisible to the consumers and other people living in those societies they just go to. Again, as an example, you know, Walmart and they buy something without thinking about where the cotton was grown to make that t-shirt or where the oil was extracted for those plastics. And so we've concentrated many of the benefits of human advancement in just a handful of countries and cultures.
1: Yeah, I used to be in recycling in the north. I lived in Portland, uh, Oregon for my last several years in the States. And I did what made Americans think they were doing a good thing. I was recycling, but honestly, most of it went back to the garbage just in other countries. And it was just kind of a, it was a big, it's a big veil. It's a big lie just to make people feel better. So even the things that we think we're doing better, they're actually hardly doing better. I think when I was there, something like 5% of the bottles I was actually touching were being recycled <laughs> because a lot of the good things like recycling aren't subsidized. Like those externalities are subsidized for Walmart. They get to come here and they get tax breaks for building and they get tax breaks for doing things while locals get no breaks. It's interesting. And uh, it it was a very quick thing I saw here because I saw free trade happen. It happened the year after I got here. And most of the population was against it, but enough of them in the cities thought it would be good to have lower taxes on imports that that short-sighted, I want to buy an iPod for a little cheaper, just cost all their neighbors their jobs. It's an interesting thing to try and change without having like, you know, I don't. I don't really want to get too involved in politics. I'm not from this land, but that's the way I've seen to change it. Now is to try and get in at the bottom up and like find the farmers and the people that want to do stuff and then assist them. Bring in some. I don't want to call it subsidy again, but bring in some some new energy into that that area because it's it's been really lacking. And uh, <clears throat> where we live again isn't for the the types that want to come here and live on a beach. We're in the middle of the jungle, farmland. So it's been a there's a certain type of person that's lived here. They've really have thrived from their land over the last 80 years. So, it's really it's really tragic to watch them kind of give up. But you couldn't grow tomatoes in this country for the last 10 years because Walmart tomatoes were pennies. And until they got here, much like much like NAFTA did to the the Mexican farmers, it's done it to us now here in short order.
0: How long have you been living in Costa Rica? Almost 10 years. Why did you make the decision to move there?
1: They d- don't have a military. I wanted to be somewhere in the world that didn't that I didn't have to spend my half of my day working to build bombs because I was making good money as a young man in Portland. I was doing recycling and confidential shredding services at the at, right at the time when 9/11 happened. So it was like it was really it was really a sweet time for for security businesses. But I got very engaged in politics in 2002. And I spent the last few years trying to redirect where my funds were going, and it wasn't working. So this country is one of the few places in the world that doesn't spend its money on military. I like that. And I really wanted to experiment with kind of the eternal spring we do have here and see what was possible in getting back to the land, homesteading, that kind of movement. And this has taught me a lot about that. I I didn't envision myself being a farmer forever, but I wanted to understand the whole process and So this place has been a very valuable lesson there. And I didn't even know the word permaculture when I got here. So I learned that about the third year in. It changed my life a ton, as you could imagine. Yes. Yeah, I was just, I came down here with a bunch of big fat no's. I was like, I'm not going to have slaves. I'm not going to put chemicals on everything, on anything. I'm not going to pay for war. And uh, over the years, I've developed the yeses too.
0: (laughs) You mentioned slaves. Do you mean that? in like an economic dominated way? Or is there a continuation of a slave culture in South America that I'm not aware of? Well, I mean, you
1: said it a minute ago, like the way that we don't seem to care where our cotton comes from there. There's been reports over the last year that there are 38.5 million people in slavery in the world. And I don't mean paid a dollar. I mean, paid nothing or sold, no control over when and where you're going to stop working. That is we're actually we actually have the most sla- we have more slavery right now than we did at the height of American slavery in the 1800s. so i I take that very seriously, and I'm I also really kind of let down by the people around in in the world that act like they they worship gurus like Jesus or whatever, but they, but Jesus wouldn't stomp on a little kid and make him a slave for chocolate, you know so I, I, i'm be- I'm begging people to pay attention to the the slaves that are involved in the supply chain. And down here, if if you want to, now down here, they will pay a dollar an hour, so it's harder to call them a slave, but they really have no control over their lives. They live in the, like the Nicaraguans that work here, they live in little shacks in the jungle working for McDonald's beef, and they make literally $5 a day. So that's not even what I mean. I want to change that too, but I really don't want to be involved in the slave culture. And pretty much you can track back large amounts of our products to people that are making nothing. Or that are working in buildings like in Malaysia where they collapse on their families because nobody cares. and like, like these, these things are, aren't okay for me. I had a movement in the States where I was really trying hard to get people to pay attention to what was going on with chocolate because most of the world's chocolate comes from the Ivory Coast and people are selling their kids for $5 to Hershey's you know, vendors or suppliers. So I, I, I had to bring light to that. And I had to see what was possible without slaves. And, by the way, when I, there's another way I may kind of mean that. You know, like every barrel of petroleum that they pull out of the ground and they pull, you know, we use about, what, 87 million barrels a day, I think. Every one of those barrels has 11 years of your or my work stored in it, of energy. Like 11 years. Like if, if a semi had to move uh, 40,000 pounds with a barrel of oil, it could move it like 500 miles. It would take me 11 years to do that. And each American uses half a barrel a week when we do the math. So that was enslaving my future child's uh, lungs and filter filter organs and kidneys and all these things that they would have to suck up all these toxins one day for me. So I could have a quick hit today. And that that's not fair at all. 87 million barrels of oil a day. While it's better than what we were doing a few years ago, we were like 91 million barrels a day. The economic slowdown is actually doing a little positive by slowing down people's consumption, but, but not nearly enough. And that subsidy is my daughter or my grandkids' liver and lungs and asthma and allergies and all the things that are going to come from that. So I don't want to take ownership
0: over future generations' health so I can have a quick hit. I don't remember the author, but they were referring to the energy that comes from petroleum as the ghost slaves of our lives and that by using that power in the way that we do that the numbers are incredible i don't remember if it was like the equivalent of 40 or 80 human beings
1: yeah for each american like each week yeah well basically slavery didn't end it just moved into oil and it changed it turned into countries at a distance suffering a lot to send us products and and i don't know if you you know much about like what happened in the 50s and things like Iran, but the way that our oil companies were treating, treating people turned into the mess that we see now with the conflict between us and the Middle East. And these things are very directly tied to the way we needed to control that oil. It's not something I can do, so what I have to do is figure out how to grow something organically without just throwing that 40 employees a week because I can flick on a tractor instead. I, I have to figure out what does that mean? Is it even possible to do it the other way anymore? Especially when you have to regenerate first. Like it's not even like you can throw seeds out and just be organic. It took me five years to get the bacteria and the mushroom count up in my soil enough to even grow anything. There's this part where there's this moment in time where we're gonna have to learn to live without subsidy. And that's been one of my missions here. So we do a lot of things like by hand and we're still we're grinding flour by hand and grinding our chocolate by hand and when you do those things it makes you realise how much less you have to consume if you're going to be fair or going to have any justice in your heart. And I, I don't know that we're going to care. Like the math doesn't seem to be working on people just telling them how much forest we're losing every day or how many species are going extinct because of these things. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to talk to people's like moral compass for the last few years. That seems to work. It seems to work a little better when you can make people feel it. So down here they get to feel it and they get to like carry manure all day up a hill and put it on plants and and, you know, it's it's it's
0: taking responsibility for it now, which means your muscles are going to be sore, which is okay with me. One of the places that I come from is I've always been a, a bit of an academic and I've enjoyed that world and running numbers and being very reductionist in my approach. One of my first mentors when I was eight years old taught nuclear physics and nuclear chemistry at Caltech. And he would sit and have conversations with me about science and the things that we were learning and how eventually if we got things small enough, they would like reveal the big picture yeah and it's only been in coming back many years later finding permaculture and deciding to continue my academic approach but studying resource management and environmental education that I discovered the idea of a sense of place and finding how much of an impact talking about place has on people because when we're talking about acreage lost in South America or the rainforests or the pollution of you know the Amazon and these great rivers that They're somewhere else. As much as we can see pictures of it and understand, well, not understand it because that's part of the issue. We don't understand it. That we can see it and have an awareness of it. But that it's only when we walk along the roadside and see the trash that's being deposited to see the plastic cups breaking down in the sun and understanding that though they are photodegrading, that they will still leave tiny shards of plastic in the soil more or less indefinitely. That that's been a place that I found engagement was in walking with people and talking with people about where they live and seeing it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And but but
1: at the end of the day, that you actually have to ask the mother culture of the world, or I'll say father culture I don't do that to mothers well, the father culture of the world is we actually have to look in the mirror and decide to like right now at this point at least until we decide to get, get more advanced in different technologies we have to kind of reduce we have to reduce our lifestyles we have to change and it's, it's, it's not just I want it to be better and I feel like I'm in the rainforest game now. I want to help it. It's I'm not going to buy as much plastic and I'm not going to eat meat from that source. And I'm not going to demand soy from there. And like those things mean you might have to change the way you live. And that seems to be a challenge because even if people care, how do you get them to change? So like showing people benefits is a good idea, too. And not just the abstract, like some other place is going to be healthier because of you you were saying earlier to, about like uh, economic things. So I've, I've been coming up with ways to to really figure out what, what works really well in the region, which is, you know, the permaculture model, figuring out what's what's what it really needs locally. And then getting my friends from all over the world to spend even a few minutes in the jungle. And then they seem to be leaving some of their energy behind. People are deciding to invest in it. And that's been, a, I've been bridging that lately, like getting people's hearts in touch with, some actually sound financial ideas, like saving money in the form of a tree that you can take in 20 years instead of saving it in a bank. Because the bank, by default, makes you an investor in deforestation somewhere. Even if you're, if you're earning 2% in a CD, that bank is making money off of some resource extraction somewhere. So so getting into the regenerative resource-based economy is something that seems to be motivating people that I love into the, into action.
0: The first time that I ever saw the numbers, on that idea of investing in trees and things that can become furniture that can last generations or food that can feed not just a family but a neighborhood was in the work of Ben Falk and he was looking at you know if you invest 20 dollars in an apple tree today in America that that can provide hundreds of dollars worth of apples over several lifetimes
1: yeah it's it's really a, we we really don't know and it actually kind of if you pay attention to the biggest business in the world big businesses what are they doing what are the wealthiest people doing? Well, in the last few years, they're speculating with cash. Up until then, though, they were controlling the resources. And there's a reason, because they're very, very valuable. And we've taken that for granted. And an acre that we let, like, Weyerhaeuser take in Oregon, we only charge Weyerhaeuser like $100 an acre to go take the trees from BLM land. They, they, they pay. They don't own the land. They, they they, rent the right from us to take it and clear-cut it. And there's a lot of money in them there hills. <laughs> And you don't have to go digging for gold you can grow it and it's amazing how people have have not connected that these billion trillion dollar industries are in, you know, they're kind of smart they're trying to they're getting in the resource and you're and we're chasing cash we're chasing the illusion while they chase the actual resource so an acre of trees done right where you plant seven out of eight to stay forever and use use the in in, in our case here i'm using the this model to fix land that's totally degraded i'm not going to go take jungle and do this but land that would have been desert in 30 more years <laughs> can produce one out of 5 or one out of 8 of its of its trees for my daughter's college education one day and it's and it's an inflation proof way of saving in fact i am, i like inflation if i own a resource so it's really a bummer that so many people have focused so much on money when it's the illusion and those resources are right there and so so many of us are already in, engaged and have families with a little bit of land somewhere or friends or or close to us and it's like you said that apple tree that might be the new revolution just getting people to understand food forests and how that stuff can really benefit them I mean my leisure time is going up every day now that I've been working on a food forest for seven years every year I have more leisure time every year that apple tree makes more but it took it took seeing it it wasn't just in books that that made me want that I we mean, may want it in the books but I couldn't feel it now that I'm eating fresh fruit from the forest and working less, I, I'm
0: getting it. It's, it's, really, it's really sinking in. <laughs> <laughs> Mine, though, I'm not a great gardener by any means, and I'm still learning a lot about plant propagation. And as I slowly disconnect from a lot of the resource seeking that I had been going through and have the time to inhabit my life, I've had opportunities to trade and barter with friends, and one of the things I've been drinking my way through lately is some elderberry mead that a friend of mine made from my elderberries, but that he fermented for me and then traded me several bottles of it back in thanks for the those berries, and it's been a very pleasurable experience to share that with others. And just a few days ago, we were talking about how I have some currants, some red currants growing, and he's like, oh, well, I'll, I'll need those next year for another batch, and we'll just keep this going. and
1: yeah, it's really an art that we're losing, it's, it's, and, but it's also an art we're regaining. Some people are really trying hard to get back into this, and it's beautiful. But at what point did, like, when we traveled around the world or we went somewhere new and we wanted that new thing, now, now we get somewhere and we're like, I need that same cheeseburger I got at home. That's really boring. Like, it's amazing to go to your place and drink a wine that doesn't come from Napa, and uh, that, that art is, is uh, being rediscovered.
0: It's something that having grown up with a family that cooked – A lot. There was a transition in the late 80s or early 90s in my family where everyone was working. Yeah. And it seemed that that was when we really began to homogenize our food within the culture of my own family. That My aunt, who would come from West Virginia with a sourdough starter that was unique to her area that had a different kind of a a bite to it. She would come then and make fried dough from that, where my grandmother would be buying chickens from a small regional grocery store that was buying from local farmers. And then it was as that supply chain changed and that just in time came that we were now working for more money to buy the things that were supposed to free us from time. But then it became less and less about my grandmother making lots of fried chicken and instead my aunt would buy it from some place and bring it in. What seemed to be those family experiences, that time got shorter. It was no longer four to six hours of cooking and sharing together. It was we'll get together for an hour, eat and leave.
1: Yeah, that's that's actually one of the biggest things we focused on here is meal, meals becoming like the priority and teaching young people how to cook again. It's it's a very it's a lost art as well. And and eating and that that turns into seasonal eating, which you know has an amazing amount of side effects. Good side effects too. We jumped away from seasonal eating too around that time in my family. We went from eating what was local to, in the late 80s, Reagan was great, huh? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> that whole moment, those 80s, I mean, it really sent people on a weird path. We've been out of control since I since we were born. I was born in 77 but the way that we've changed from food and from the way our finances have shifted and the way we think about debt all these things have collab- have come together to make like in my mind kind of madness actually if we step back and look at human existence for millions of years and our evolution we're only here because we collaborated well we're only here cuz we shared and all of a sudden in this last 40 years we're supposed to be the me everything and don't share and and just eat by yourself. And like, where did that happen? I, it's, it's it's anti-human in my mind, what we've been doing. <laughs> I don't know. We won't make it unless we work together like we did for three and a half million years to get to this point. And I'm not, not trying to be nasty about and negative, but I, I see species disappearing in front of my eyes and that and hurts me bad. And since I do have a voice and a kind of a loud and thunderous one at times, I'm choosing to, to use it to protect those little frogs and stuff that are the externalities of our lack of awareness with food.
0: <laughs> what you're speaking to, and some of the conversations I've had with others who have made this transition, and it's one where I'm still kind of, I think of it as I'm still standing in both worlds, to show kind of a, my own transition from one place to another, taking my time to do so. But one of the questions that I get from many people is like, how do you do it? How do you think about this and make all these decisions and live so intentionally? And my honest response is that it's exhausting to make these choices every day, to walk into a place and go, okay, I haven't solved this issue. Like one of my big problems is food because I have celiac disease and also have to practice a low carb, low fat diet because of a family history of diabetes. And so trying to solve that with a family and cooking and things, it's something that I'm still figuring out. So I still buy in certain things that are like transitional comforts to make that easy. And people ask, it's like, well, how do you do that? And how do you figure it out? And I go, I'm reading every package. I'm figuring out everything that I'm doing. And then it's okay, I'm going to cook one new recipe a week. I'm going to fill my crock pot and make something that I can then eat over several days. But yes, I'll admit my hypocrisy that I'm buying in organic, you know, prepackaged meals because that's something that makes figuring all this out easier right now.
1: I had this talk with, you know, Stephen Brooks. Have you ever met Stephen Brooks?
0: You heard the name? No, I, that name doesn't ring a bell either. He's a really amazing permaculture
1: leader down here. You should talk to him on your podcast someday. He runs a place called Puntamona. And he's, he's been doing this for 20 years down here, and he's an amazing voice for permaculture. And one thing he told me about what you were just saying is he called it a transitional ethic. We can have transitional ethics. We can't win right now. You and I can't turn on the permaculture switch tomorrow and make everybody listen. So we can't change everything around us right now. <laughs> it can get frustrating if you're you know, a, go, a go-getter. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm learning how to calm down in that transitional ethic. And it means I might need to use this computer that I don't agree with anything that happened to get it to me. Nothing. But without it, I wouldn't have raised a million dollars to fix 10 farms in my neighborhood. So there's this transitional ethics that, I, that I'm learning. It's not the world we're going to be in, but it's, it's, it's part of breaking down the old one. And I'm going to use the tools that the old world has created to, to beat it, to beat it. <laughs> to conquer it. So, so I, I have that same conflict even here in the jungle every day because I can't make everything I need and I don't want to. I, it's, I don't think it's about me being sustainable. It's about a community thriving in a, in a way like it, it should from all of our neighbors and our whole bioregion and our whole country and the whole world. I'm, I'm way into globalization. I'm just not into the, the free movement of capital and, the, and people get stuck at borders and drown while they're trying to escape from drought or war. The globalization I want let Syrians go into Germany freely you know so there's this moment in time where we're going to have to have our ethics shift but we can't beat ourselves up for the things we have to do to live because we didn't do this you and I didn't do this to ourselves but there is this interesting thing right now you and I we're choosing I think to I could be in in the north making $250,000 a year and putting my kid in private school and doing whatever I felt like we're actually at a moment where the people on top of the pyramid are choosing to walk down. And that's interesting. Not a lot of people in history give up their privilege. And I, I see my my parents and grandparents losing their minds for a while because they, they saw me giving up the privilege that they'd scratched and fought for. So it's it's an interesting time there too. Like we, we're giving up by changing. We're just we're giving up that easy life that everybody else seems to get to have. It's, but you know what I'm telling you, man, it's a lot easier than, than having cancer. You know, you say it's hard and yeah, but if you're eating healthy, You don't get diabetes, maybe, and your neighbor does. And while he saw you struggle for years and spend more for food, which you don't have to do to eat, right? right? You guys have CSAs around you there, I'm sure.
0: We do have CSAs, but there's been a bit of a cultural issue with CSAs regionally. I should say my experience with CSAs recently is that some farms are using CSAs as a way to get their farm off the ground and then are transitioning to selling their better their quote-unquote, I should say, better products to the grocery stores and via the farmer's market, and then passing their secondary and lower quality produce and other supplies to their CSA members. So that's been a difficulty. Yeah, I could imagine.
1: I was working with a couple of brilliant ones in Oregon, and that was their focus in the world was this. But it really does matter why, why the person started it, for sure.
0: And that's where the last CSA that I subscribed to, which was awesome, was a, a Century Farm. They were not organic, though they did use integrated pest management and some other things, but they provided a lot of fruit and vegetables, and they didn't sell to any kind of a regional market. The only place to purchase their supplies was through their farm or via their CSA.
1: Yeah, that's great. I I can see the CSA movement, if done properly, is a way that a lot of us can get our permaculture projects off the ground, but we we should keep that focus a bit because I was working with a place called The Gathering Together Farm, and what they did with their extra produce was start a little restaurant, like that, and that made them fabulous amounts of money. Selling tomatoes as a ketchup is a lot better than selling tomatoes at the Walmart. <laughs> I've seen how it can be done, so I, it's hopeful, but then it's also frustrating, because some people seem to be, like you're saying, using it just to kick their businesses off. I actually see a lot of hope in that still, because there's... There's something like 10,000 farmers markets now. And, in, and I don't know if you remember, but in 2000, there was only like 400 farmers markets of consequence in the U.S. So we're seeing a huge shift. It's just not, maybe it's not getting televised, I don't think.
0: I can say again from here in Pennsylvania, we went from two brick and mortar farmers markets when I first moved to the Harrisburg region in the early 2000s. But since then, we've had a number of outdoor farmers markets really grow, uh, pop-up markets, and they're everywhere there're probably a dozen that i could name within 20 or 30 minutes of where i live
1: yeah well we you know we can't just get rid of the old system by wanting it we have to rebuild the infrastructure so every one of those little stands is is a little more hope that people are transitioning and a little less money that goes into walmart and, <laughs> and it's beautiful and that's happening everywhere my friends and family a lot of the times people will come do permaculture courses with us or just be here to do internships and they'll tell – they've never heard of a CSA. And they'll actually argue with me about how they there's none, that, none near them because they've never heard of them. And then I'll go on on uh, the Internet and find 10 different locations that were within an hour of people that they didn't even know about. So I've, uh, I've been pushing the idea that we need to do PSAs for CSAs because we can withdraw legitimacy from Walmart. And every second we take from them, I can see the difference here because – we're in one of those supply chains. We're where the pineapples come from. <laughs> We're where the bananas come from. So every time someone switches to eat more local stuff up there, I get to have a little less dirty water here. So I'm, I'm pushing hard to get that done. And that's that's where, one of the places I think where you can tell people to put energy right now, not just to have the no, 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 I'm not going to participate energy, but the, oh, this is one of the yeses. So. <laughs>
0: And that really reinforces that idea from the permaculture community of having a bountiful, positive perspective on this rather than a lot of the doom and gloom that we get elsewhere. How can we use the resources we have if we're if we come from a culture or a society that has chased financial capital? Well, how do we put that to good use? Yeah.
1: Yeah. But it, it, it comes down to a lot. It's changing change what you want in your heart, too. And, and thinking like it's, it's a lot different thinking. We've been told that cash is really how you how security happens, but what is it? Paper money always goes back to its original value, which is zero at some point. So the faith in that was so misguided, and it was short term. Humans really do have no long term perspective, which is really hard to get that. And to think that dollars and chasing that and saving it and 401ks and all this is the way, and that it's going to work. That's really maybe not looking at the fact that it's all new. It's a new idea. This this has been 100 years since people counted on this stuff. Maybe 80 that they really counted on it. And that's not history. That's just a little blip. That that comfort, we need to check what that means and really open our eyes to what's happening around us, right? Because the numbers actually aren't lying. Most people around us are doing worse all the time. Not to dwell on the negative, but I don't want to do that. I want to pick a new path. I want to thrive, not survive. And that's, that's a big shift in thinking is being able to maybe sacrifice a little bit of that security that we've learned to feel good about in the last 50 years and, and actually try and get into the way maybe my Native American brothers had security where they knew those trees were there and they would, they would walk by that area every year when it was when it was ready to harvest. Like that's the kind of security I think I can count on now, but it did take really studying this and really understanding that negative part, because if there's a landslide coming I'm not going to not be negative. I'm going to scream and yell at my friends to move. <laughs> and that yelling may sound nasty. It may be like deep-throated, like, move. <laughs> it may scare people. It may scare my daughter to hear that. But I would yell to move from a landslide. So I see a landslide with the financial worlds. It's all bullshit. And it's, it's falling on my friends and family. So that negative thing, while I don't want to dwell, it really does kick me in the butt every morning to remind my friends and my family that they ought to be doing the positive things like with urgency. Because I think the, the maybe the lack of understanding the 200 species going extinct every day because it sounds like a negative thing that maybe people don't want to think about. If you don't understand that, maybe your urgency won't be turned on like it could. But I, I really want my daughter to have wild animals on the planet. I want her to see varieties of trees, not just pine trees. So like those things may sound negative and permaculture does beg us to look for the good options. But it also, I mean... When people are coming from ignorance, that fire can really move them sometimes.
0: It kind of takes us to a place with everything that we've gone around with in this conversation in that the place that we find ourselves now is systemic. Yeah. And what got us here is not the choices that we as individuals have necessarily made, but collectively human societies and cultures have made over many generations that got us here. And that transitional ethic that you referred to, I think that that push towards looking to the positive and the bountiful within permaculture comes as a way of balancing, that it's that pendulum swing in the other direction to show what else is there until we can settle to a middle and be able to look at the positive and the negative and hold each in one hand and bring them together and understand how to make choices around them.
1: Yeah. But you know, one one thing, it's negative. I don't. I, I'm using the word negative less because... If you were feeling bad, you would go to the you would try and go to someone that knew how to diagnose you, yeah? And if you don't get a proper diagnosis, you don't know what to do. So the diagnosis may be a painful moment. You're gonna have to look at the body and see that you've abused it. And until you diagnose it properly, there's no proper medicine. I see a lot of people thinking like recycling is the proper medicine, but I was in the recycling industry. And you do your damnedest probably to separate your plastics and your paper and write. You put your glass in the right spot, I bet. Right, Scott?
0: We have common collection for recycling here. Okay, well,
1: even then it goes to the place and they separate it. Okay, But then the market goes down a bit today in China because they don't need to make more Barbie doll packaging this week. Or Dora the Explorer keychains or whatever the hell they're making. And uh, the market goes down and I throw that stuff that we separated or that the machine separated, I throw it back in the garbage as the vendor because I have to make the quick business decision not to store a bunch of stuff. So not diagnosing this problem properly is making people feel like they're curing themselves by recycling. But they're not. It's still going to the garbage. So so getting a a proper diagnosis to me is, is a very powerful thing. And that was just pitched to me that way in the last year. I, was, I kept using the word negative too, like maybe some negative motivation. But it's not negative motivation when you go and figure out that you have the beginning of diabetes. You start taking the steps you need to take not to get full-blown diabetes, right? And that could be a negative thing. You're, you're telling yourself you can't have chocolate or candy like everyone else. And that could sound negative. But to me, it sounds like you're, you're finally getting in line with, with bringing health to your body. And it may have taken that shock at the doctor, that day of crying when you were told that you were sick or something. And then you get active. If we were all starting from healthy, maybe it wouldn't take that. But like you said, it's generations of of piled up madness that we have to diagnose properly, I think, to
0: deal with. What you just relayed there about a diagnosis in diabetes, I can think about the systemic issues of the world reflected in my own life because it took 10 years to get a diagnosis for my celiac disease. And it was all of these health impacts and why do I not feel well? Why is this happening or that happening? Okay, it seems if I eat this way, I feel a little bit better, but now all of a sudden I'm sick again. And going through these paths and things, and now that's where our culture and our society and the earth is, is that we've been sick for so long. I know a lot of people when they get ill, they just adjusted to it and they get used to feeling that way. And then one day for some of them, they have somebody say, well, you know, that's sounds like this. I just had a friend who was diagnosed with this. Why don't you talk to somebody? They go talk to their doctor and they go, you know, I heard about this. Oh, well, let's check it out. And then they find out that's what it is. And just having a name for what they are afflicted by gives them something to work with.
1: That's right. And, and if you would have thought, if you would have listened to some friend that didn't know what they were diagnosing, right, though, and you just followed their advice and you didn't do anything to solve your problem, you may then you've got a problem still. So it's really helpful to get a proper diagnosis.
0: With the long time that it took me getting the wrong diagnoses from a doctor over and over and over again.
1: Yeah, it's a bummer. And then you can, like, if you want to talk about the economy and tie it to that, now you find out the doctor's a paid dude from Pfizer and he doesn't give a shit about you actually being healthy. He wants to give you a drug. So, like, this this turns into, like, all these things where there's things working against the health of us in our in our world that we have to recognize and... And start checking, you know, checking the label for where where stuff comes from, and checking the label on where your advice is coming from too. You know, that's that's all part of it. That's why I like to say the only thing you should buy at the store are things with one ingredient. I don't I don't need to read packaging anymore. Does it have one ingredient in it? Yeah, I want it. Yeah. <laughs> although although I'm 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 human, and I still when I come to the city after being in town in the, at the farm for three months without leaving or something, I'll still find myself going and getting a piece of bread that comes from GMO wheat. But, you know, I was conditioned to eat bread. That's where I'm from. But I'm learning that it's more of a treat or just something I do. I'm learning not to, like, turn down my neighbors when they offer me a piece of, of bread or a piece of meat or something. But it's it's the everyday, what you're throwing your weight behind is what your life is really going to mean. And your, your health, too. Like, is, you know, if, you, if I ate that all the time, I'd be unhealthy. So it's it's both. It's both. Uh, You want to feel good. You want to live as long as you can. <laughs> all these things. I mean, I think... But uh, when we when we kind of just follow blindly without asking these questions or without doing what you were saying earlier, like this is difficult. It's it's hard. Every day you got to struggle, wake up and like analyze everything you do if you want to make a better footprint. That takes a lot of energy, but it, it pays back, right? I mean, you're probably healthier than you were 20 years ago. I know I am. I haven't been to the doctor in 15 years. I haven't had to, but, but that, that came at a cost, right? That came at a cost of having to learn and read and and you know you said you're not the best farmer yet, neither am I. I'm a good coordinator, and I can put good farmers to work at my farm. <laughs> but I, I had to really know. I had to really start researching and trusting and and finding people that knew what they were doing because it was such it's such a huge thing to do on your own. I think permaculture' is beautiful like that. It's teaching it's teaching me to start having faith in the wisdom of others that have done this and
0: studied it. and that that that's a big step too. Through that transition for people, Often we hear the idea of meeting other people where they're at, but we also have to forgive ourselves and meet ourselves where we're at and understand the place that we're in and wake up and make those decisions that work for us that day but do continue to push our boundaries and move us further and further down that road. And one of my instructors, Rico Zuck, at my teacher training my first speech that I gave was just, it was awful. It was just a five minute off the cuff in one of the permaculture principles, and I didn't do very well. And I kind of just started beating myself up for it. And he's like, stop, stop. We as human beings are really good at piling on ourselves. And the more that we do that, and the deeper it gets, the more then that we have to struggle to get through. Just stop it. Do your best in each moment. And that's what matters. Keep pushing to get better. And... Don't worry about what you did in the past. Worry about what you're doing right now to make the world and yourself and the community around you better. Yeah, for sure.
1: For sure. And, and carry with the wisdom from your paths forward, but try not to live in it. Live in it. Don't live in it. But a lot, of, a lot of the best things that have ever happened in the world came because, because certain people or groups were, were so negatively affected that it became like it became a mission for the whole world not to let those things happen again. Or, or to or to, to at least say that we're a culture that now doesn't accept in theory things like slavery. So like I think we're at the point now where we've we've ex- acknowledged that a lot of our past ha- uh, past habits are, are nasty and we want to move past them. So now it's a matter of organizing right and like rebuilding an, an economy or, or a local a local whatever uh, a local lifestyle that doesn't do those things that we didn't like. That's the hard work, right? That's the like, long-term coordination. And I find a lot of young revolutionaries coming to my life, coming to the farm. And they really think it's all going to happen today and tomorrow. And It is for them, I hope. But it doesn't mean it's going to happen for the Walmart executive. Like That's going to take us more work. But, it, but for me, I, I have had, I've had a revolution. It's over in my heart. We won. And I'm, I'm living like it.
0: There was a moment some time ago in my life where I experienced a crisis. But in doing so, I realized how free I had become in not needing so many things that for decades of my life I had been told, taught, and indoctrinated to believe that I needed. And as I let go of many of those material things and began to really investigate my friendships and become deeply intimate socially and emotionally with people who were close to me, already and then to expand that circle to others how little i needed yeah and with that really came a deep sense of freedom something that you spoke to earlier about making our transitions and you mentioned about you know right now you have a computer someone in the middle of an interview one time asked me what would happen if tomorrow all of the electricity went off and i could not continue to produce the podcast and do this kind of of a world-spanning electronic communication. I said, well, I'd be okay. This is what I do now, but if things change, then so does what I do. And I may love this, but it's not what I have to do. It's just what I choose to do right now. Hey, man, you can still grab a soapbox. Go out. If the electricity went off tomorrow, I would be going door to door to my neighbors who live in the development directly across from my house and knock on their door and ask them, can I help you start to grow food today? Can we come together and begin figuring out what do we do tomorrow if the power doesn't come back on.
1: Yeah, that's, that's powerful. And something you said a second ago, it, it really rung true and it brought something up in my mind. So what you just said about if technology went off, what would you do? And you also said that you kind of dropped a lot of the technology or that the pursuit of it and went harder into relationships. Well, I think what money and technology has done is it's made it so you don't have to have relationships. Like I have an uncle who's a real jerk, but he's the best mechanic I've ever met. And in the old world... My uncle lived next door, he's the mechanic, and I would have to like take a deep breath and learn how to communicate with my uncle and we would do the job. Even if we had challenges, we were a community and we had to do it. Now, credit and the internet and a million places to go do business makes it so I could sit in my house, be friends with no one, no one, but I could still get all the plumbing done because I can just call a guy and, and charge it. Going away from and using the, the technology has allowed us to get away from friends and family and tribe. We needed it until you had a telephone with a credit card so you could get your plumbing done. You had to have a relationship with your neighbors. I see that as an important piece, what you just said, is getting dialed back into friendships. And then you learn that friendships aren't always the best thing. Sometimes it's hard, especially if you do like live together and work together a lot more than, than maybe most people do in this world now. So, you, But you might have to work at it. It means you have to learn how to like take a deep breath, communicate, compromise, things that you might not do in your life when you're just in your little house.
0: It was the way that I was raised was my grandfather grew up as a farmer, but his family lost the farm in the depression. And even though he continued to farm for many years, he was also building houses to take care of that financial capital. And one of the stories that my grandmother told me was that my grandfather would buy her a new car before he would buy her any new dishes or furniture. And because of that being that symbol of of wealth and having made it and his ability to spend money. And the way then that that impacted the way that I was raised through my father, having grown up with those experiences with his father, my grandfather, was all about how I would eventually go to college and have a job that allowed me to earn a lot of money so that then if anything ever went wrong, I would have the capital to pay somebody. But then how that was a detriment to my own life because of the skills that I didn't pick up. Because around the time I was a teenager, you know, my father and I built things like crazy until I started to develop an interest in a career like my eighth grade year of middle school, before I transitioned into high school, I started, you know, getting better with computers and things. And my dad started pushing me towards that because he saw it as a good career. And then all those skills that I was being taught went away. And then as an adult, not wanting to ask my neighbor, who's good at small engine repair to help me with a problem with my lawnmower and just ready to cart it up and take it to the local shop and pay them the 70 or $80 an hour to fix it because that indoctrination of, oh, well, somebody else can handle this for you all, and the value exchange is money.
1: Yeah, that's right. And for some reason, we're uncomfortable walking over and talking to our neighbors about it. <laughs> like that That's the tragedy and all that, if, what you just said to me the most, is that, that your neighbor and you could
0: have been hanging out. <laughs> you know, go over with a six-pack of beer or something or whatever and talk. And-
1: I meet a lot of older guys. They look back at this, like, Pre-technological America with this fondness, and they got a glitter in their eye, and they talk about the good old days, and and I look back and I think, yo, you mean those days when black guys couldn't eat at diners with you, you know? <laughs> i like, they're like, well, yeah, no, not that part. <laughs> like the part where communities still talked and worked together, that part is a part that we need to get back to, and you know, I call that that's more of like it's a real shame that we've lost that, and and money and technology have allowed that, they really have. The fact that you can just, you pick up and move across the country when you want to work somewhere different. That is such a new anomaly, yeah, compared to the history of man. We used just to have to figure it out. We used to have to be innovative. And I I read recently that the most innovative humans have ever been was actually, as as a whole, is actually back about the time we learned to farm and when we lived on farms. And now we have a lot of innovation when it comes to, you know, new tricks and technology. But that comes from a very few people. Like in general, most humans are losing their little touch of innovation. And that's, uh, that's a part of it, that losing that local everything. Everybody it's, it's I specialize now. That's what I do, right? that one thing. And that's hard. That's hard when you're getting into permaculture, because all of a sudden you need to be a jack of a lot of trades. In fact, I grew up in a wrecking yard. My dad had a machine shop with a wrecking yard and, and a cold place where I had to go pull parts off cars and work on motors. And I literally hated it and thought I would I would rather be in an office the rest of my life. When I moved to the jungle, I cannot thank my parents enough for raising me like a redneck. <laughs> I really can't. Like what that, I, I, if I wouldn't have had the ability to like flow into challenging things and physical things, like I, I don't know how I would have done this. I really don't. So that, that's, a, that's a powerful thing we have to get into, is becoming a jack of more trades and unspecializing a bit. I don't know how I would have gotten through any of the first months without like being able to to jump into do some plumbing and jump into do some building and like that that was such a valuable thing. And building tree houses when I was eight has done more good for me than than the the best moments of running a big business in a big city. Like I got i I'm getting more now out of the the hammer time I had with my father. <laughs> and by the way, I'm learning to evolve back into finding those best parts of that of that businessman in me too. And now that I've got a grounding in what I want to do those things become
0: great tools. It's something that I go through with some friends of mine who are small business owners in that until you've owned a business or run a business, there are a lot of things that you just don't understand or know and cultivating those skills and understanding the networks that are necessary in order to make it work and grow and function um, meaningfully. But then as you Invest in business and grow those skills the way that they also apply to permaculture because of the networks of people that we need who have those skills that we don't. Yes, we may be expanding our skills and becoming a jack of many trades, but there's so much out there that we can never know it all or do it all.
1: Lots of teachers out there, lots of, lots of people that have, have already done a lot of things we think we need to relearn. Or reinvent.
0: <laughs> I originally come from an IT background with a lot of technology and with that came an arrogance because it was kind of necessary to exist in that environment, especially because a lot of the work that I did over the years were for people who were very well educated and when I would walk in to fix a problem. It would be a sense of, well, I have these letters after my name, so you need to listen to me. And I'm looking and going, but I know how to fix your problem. You go do what you do. I'll go do what I do. And we'll come together in a couple of hours when I fixed your problem. We won't have this conversation. And with that that sense of like oneness and no, I can do this. I know everything I need to do within this arena. And as I've moved away from that field and get further and further away from it, an age may have something to do with it the more that i am able to accept and embrace that it doesn't matter where someone comes from they have something to teach me and there's something that i can learn that's a big step it's
1: it's when we stop maybe trying to be like teenager like like adolescence when you when you actually start gaining like accepting wisdom because wisdom might mean you don't have to make the same mistake they did and that's that's a beautiful thing like learning learning how to accept other people's wisdom That's a big part of the permaculture too. Especially since so many people that get into this kind of thing or people that get into starting their own businesses, they have to have what you just said. You have to have like this confidence in your decisions. If you're going to be a small business person, you may not always be right, but when you make a decision, you got to, you got to do it. That may be lacking a lot in like the employment, the employee minded folks. So it's, it's something that people, like you said, when you get involved in a business, you just have no idea what's about to happen to you as you transition from a employee to a to an owner of something uh, or a coordinator, it's, it's an important step. I think everybody should everybody should uh, should branch out sometime and do something on their own just to feel all that. Yeah, and then then it's easier to step back in and learn to accept people's help <laughs> once you've tried to do something maybe without. But uh, I, don't, I tell you, with, like permaculture, again, I think a lot of people think permaculture is just farming, right? I get that a lot. It's just the way you do gardening or something. But it's everything. And you know what? I need the best techie guy ever to, to help create the way we're going to make our blockchain technology work like Bitcoin does for how we, how we create local currency. So I need your IT guy to come out and flourish, it's not something we should get away from those tech, those, those things that we learned in the, over the last 20 years and those things we changed to and got away from what we, you and I might think of as like a more balanced world. But i tell you what, I, I, we need to come up with apps that can make local trade easily trackable. And that stuff isn't going to happen from a guy who knows how to dig with a shovel only or, or a great mechanic has, doesn't want to touch, touch any coding, you know? <laughs> so I, I'm finding like, uh, a lot of those skills. It's not that they died in us or that we want them to die. It's that maybe they atrophy for a while. But we should we should keep working out those things because this this next world. It's not like the power's going to go off tomorrow everywhere, like your friend said. Maybe it's more of like the slow death of the old economy. So we've got this chance to use all the tools we have. And I think the I think your type people who were in the tech world over the last 10, 20 years, like a lot to offer this next moment to integrate. The resource-based thinking with that easy flow of energy and technology, the way the Internet could be for us, the way it could be this amazing worldwide journal that ever uh, unfolds every millisecond and could share wisdom. Instead, it's, it's kind of going the way of maybe the barracudas and the big companies. But, but we, we can change that. And, you know, we need, we need techies to get involved in, in our mesh, mesh networks. We need to pull the Internet back into our control. I don't want my friends logging on through Comcast anymore. Like you, want, you complain about them spying on you. Well, duh, they have. They take all your information. They, they can read it. So we need to start our own networks again. We need to get back to way like the kind of the way that it was when you started it. I bet. Like when did you start playing with, you know, you were playing with C plus plus in the mid eighties, like I was.
0: I came a little bit later into that. I was programming on Apple's using things like Logo. And such just as an introduction. And then I was programming with C and C++ in um, the 90s on Unix systems. But yeah, I mean, that was back when still your internet connections were relatively rare or dial up full access to the internet was. Yeah, my first internet provider was a company that I was paying for like a set number of hours a month dialing in with a modem. I remember a BBS system where we were trading information because the guy who ran the BBS would load a tape up with a whole bunch of data, send it to one of his friends running a BBS up in like the Northeast. That friend would then send a uh, copy that data off that tape, send a tape back. And that's how we were getting new updates of software and information from different forums and boards. And
1: It didn't take Facebook. It didn't take a centralized, massive behemoth to get work done. It took coordinating with, with people that wanted to do the work. And I, the, it, we really let the Internet devolve into what it wasn't meant to be. I mean you know like the beginnings of this this tech boom the internet was the idea the military designed this stuff was it was decentralized power that was the beauty of it and we've we've let it all centralize again since like the telecom deregulations and stuff into like one or two big companies having all this power and but there's so much opportunity in that and people need to start rebuilding local networks and and taking back that power and and sharing connections to satellite dishes that are from venezuela instead of comcast or whatever you know we we, can, we need to reinvent that too so there's a huge job to do with the techies that permaculture is like really needs and it's missing right now because so many people think about it just as a soil science
0: it's a conversation that has been inhabiting a lot of what i've been doing with the podcast over the last two two and a half years is about moving this conversation away from just the land base part of what was moving me in this direction something that when I spoke with David Holmgren he touched on was that and I don't remember if it made it into the interview or it was something he said to me afterwards was that when he and Bill were putting together this idea it wasn't supposed to be just the land base it was about people having three or four areas of focus that were about all the elements of human culture and society
1: yeah I think a lot of people don't realize that there's more than just farming chapters in the permaculture design manual that they did chapter 14 is my focus like, I'm a, I'm a Chapter 14 guy. I'm going to help crush banks and rebuild local finance, and I'm going to help build re- local governments, and permaculture is all of that. It's a real, it's a shame when people get stuck in the gardens. Now, I do understand what you're saying, is the, gar- the garden is that common thread, and it's a symbol of our internal, like, the way we treat our bodies and our whole world. It's important, but, but we, can't get, we can't let people get stuck in that, and it, I think a lot of permaculture PDCs need to make sure that they're, they're pushing and they're focusing on that as well instead of just getting people out and doing a land design. That's fun, but in three-week class or something, they're not going to become the best landscapers in the world ever anyway. So really what we're doing is we're messing with their heads for three weeks. And when I'm going to mess with their head, I want to make sure I mess with it all over. And that most of permaculture is probably going to be in changing your habits in a lot of ways. And that's a lot bigger than a garden. You can go out in a garden and be the best green gardener in the world. But if you go and and buy a car that comes from slaves and you need oil to pump through. Like, you, you know, your permaculture died as you left the garden's border. That needs to not be the way. And, I, and actually, only one out of 20 people needs to be a food producer. I don't want a whole world of gardeners. So we really do need to remember that when we're teaching courses, is that we're, we're trying to create one farmer, and maybe that, maybe they're all the farmers in that room. Maybe they all came because they want to be farmers. But I also need, a, I need accountants that want to help build a new way to do that. I want a politician to come to my next PDC. You know, I wish Bernie Sanders had a PDC, but if he thought it was only about gardens, he might not take it seriously. So I'm the chapter 14, like urgency man in our, in our courses. I just, I pretty much just talk about that.
0: Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners? Wow.
1: Well, I've been focusing so much lately on forestry and I've been really, really become like one minded over the last months. Cause I'm, I'm trying to help my neighbors that I don't know. That's, it's interesting. I, I'm starting to sound like a broken record, so <laughs> I, would, I would say, uh, man, I, I just have this urgency. It's about urgency. It's about really recognizing like what I for me at least, I'm finding that it took that making it all so personal. It became so so personal when I had a baby in 2003, or my wife did. It was It was very much like, we're doing something that's going to matter. And in our lifetimes, we may not see it really happen. And I know a lot of young people think we're going to see a collapse tomorrow or whatever. Good luck with that. (laughs) We're in this for the long haul. And building infrastructure may be a little laborious and it may seem futile at times. But like you said, this other economy and model wasn't built overnight. It was generations. So while trying to replace an old model, we don't just get to do it with our ideas. And it's not just romantic. It's a lot of shovel time. It's a lot of going out and talking to neighbors. It's a lot of community organizing and things that, that people may not, may not have thought of as so important. But it is. That's the most important part is getting out and doing the hard work. And it's not as romantic as I originally thought it would be. At times it is. It really is. When you go and pick a – I just got to eat our first uh, avocados this year. That was a romantic experience. <laughs> I got to eat my first anona or custard apple this year off of one of our trees. And that's when it became, the, I, it touched on that, you know, the reason I came and what I was looking for was that beautiful moment of, of actually producing something organic or whatever. But it, it was seven or eight years of working on subsoil and learning about how bacteria and biocelia are slowly down there working for us. It just, it, it, it makes me think about the same way about those people that are right now in Ferguson, and right now in Baltimore, like organizing their communities against police violence. or And it's the stuff that you, it's under the surface. You don't see it until you see it. <laughs> and then you do. And so I think we're coming like a storm. And it's but we have to build that infrastructure. And it's the long haul, man. And it's if you've got that fire and energy like I had when I came down here and started this, you better get ready to like put some hardwood on that fire because it needs to keep burning for a while. <laughs> This isn't kindling, man. This isn't just going to happen today. I, used to, I woke up every day my last 10 years in the U.S., click on the TV and thought every day would be the day. And, man, I was let down every morning. But now now that I'm seeing that I've, I've got to see about four or 5,000 people come through our little free school here, I'm getting faith that there are a lot of people out there doing that subsoil, that infrastructure work. And whether it be literally in their communities or in their hearts, they're doing it. So my, I, have, I have a lot of, uh, I don't like the word hope. Uh, but I have, I have a lot of i 'm getting more faith that people are are understanding that part, and I want to keep getting the youth that are fired up and want it today to show up because it takes those guys and gals to go out and hand out flyers on a corner all day in the rain or something but that kind of stuff's super important and it couldn 't impress that on young people enough right now and old people i think I think a lot of our a lot of our next movements are going to come because the the young and old decide to to stand and i 'm looking forward to the day when there 's a million grandmas in the way of the ports and in Oakland, and <laughs> in San Francisco, and Seattle. And we decide to like stop toxic things from coming into our lives. Like those things, those things are coming. It's happening. But it's bubbling beneath the surface. and You can't control when seeds grow. You can just plant them and tend them. <laughs> and, and then
0: it happens. Thank you for all the places that we went today. When we were setting this up, I didn't think that it was going to turn into an interview or a recorded conversation, but I'm really glad that it did.
1: Yeah, it's fun, Scott. I'm glad.
0: And that was Joshua Peace Seeker Hughes, You can find out more about his work at verdenergia.org, and by the link in the show notes. As part of Joshua's work to bring his talents to bear and assist others in what they do, he has donated a permaculture design course to the podcast as a fundraiser. Since I don't know when you will hear this, the PDC is being raffled off through November 27, 2015. Chances are $50 each and is limited to no more than 50 entries. The prize is transferable if you would like to enter on someone's behalf or are unable to attend. Everyone who enters and does not win is entitled to $100 off of a future PDC at Verde Energia. You will have to provide transportation. Find out complete details by clicking on the Costa Rica tab at the permaculturepodcast.com or by following the link in the show notes. Joshua is also open to coming back On the podcast for another open conversation like this one to talk about social enterprise and divestment and other chapter 14 permaculture topics. Let me know if you have any questions for him. With those announcements, I just want to let you know that Jen Mendez at Permikids.com has some edge alliances coming up in cooperation with Lisa Kolhep, focusing on outdoor place-based nature study. November 8, 2015 is Homegrown Family, and December 13 is The Neighborhood Tribe. Lorena Harris joins Jen to talk about form on October 27th and patterns on November 10th. You can read about both of these series of classes and see the other upcoming courses by going to permikids.com forward slash community hyphen collaboration. Stepping away from this conversation, I'm left with three reminders of how to change our lives and accomplish our goals. Those are living with intent, living where we are at, and living in community. Living with intent means to actively make choices about our actions and what we bring into the world. Now more than ever, each of us and our decisions impact not only ourselves, but also the descendants of humanity and all other life on the planet. Let's act like our choices matter, because they do. Living where you're at means inhabiting both the physical sense of place and getting to know the people in space that you call home, but also about developing self-awareness, We must know our needs and wants in order to live well where we are and to be kind to ourselves and others, for each of us are at a different stage of the journey, and that trip, though we may work with others, is our own to take. And as we live where we're at and live with intent, those choices become ever more personal on what makes sense to us in the here and now and how it will impact our future. Living with community means connecting with others to rebuild what we've lost as a culture, We arrived at this moment through the passage of time, and so did the story of our society. We can't fix things overnight, and even though our journey may be our own, working with others lightens the load of what we have to bear to create the world we want to live in. Make sure that you know other like-minded folks that you can sit down and tell stories with, break bread, have dinner, or Sunday morning coffee. Expand your Zone 1 and Zone 2 social permaculture circles. As you grow those connections, you can make them even larger. As you do, get real with other people. Dig deep. Know one another. Get to know one another so that you can have the trust that they'll be there for you and you will be for them, whatever the situation ahead. Those are definitely abbreviated versions of those ideas, but something that I still continue to develop and will be coming back to sometime sooner rather than later. What did you think of this interview? and the places that Joshua and I went with this more relaxed conversational style. Let me know. You can also get in touch if there's any way that I can assist you on your path. Call 717-827-6266, email show at permaculturepodcast.com or if you'd like, drop a letter or postcard in the mail to me. That address is The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, on October 22nd, is the second half of the Riverside Project Roundtable. On October 29th, Lisa Rose joins me to talk about Midwest foraging. And after that, Peter Michael Bauer returns to discuss human versus conservation rewilding. And then in mid-November, the episode with Derek and Josh about the Gibbs house will air. Until the next time, spend each day transitioning to the life you want to live while creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.